Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were finishing up our visit at the Israel Museum here in Jerusalem, and we were specifically learning about the Shrine of the Book, which houses the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we learned a little bit about Qumran, and that's the site where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. It's a little bit north of us, about two hours or so. In fact, the uh, site we're going to today is very close to Qumran. We'll get to more of that later. But with regard to Qumran, there's been some debate as to whether or not Jews actually live there. And as I share with you, I'm a strong believer that Jews did indeed live there uh, at some time in the past. The archaeological clues are really just too great. I mean, why else would we find signs of mikvahs there? That's a very specific uh, aspect of the Jewish religion, a way way that they practice their religion, rather. So we know that that's unique. And And there are other clues that get pretty detailed beyond the scope of where we're at right now in our understanding so I would respectfully disagree simply on that basis with those who say that, Jew, uh, that Jews didn't live at Qumran. Now, one thing we don't know, uh, one thing we really just have to simply speculate about is the sects of Judaism that would have existed at Qumran. So to help you understand, just first consider this. When we think about the major denominations of Judaism today, there are going to be three major denominations. So there's Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed. And so each denomination has some various beliefs and they kind of differentiate one denomination from the other. It's kind of like denominations in Christianity, if you want to think about it that way. We may be more familiar with that, right? Each denomination is, is following general Christian principles, but there are going to be some differences, some maybe more minor, some maybe more major, between denominations. So, for example, the Reformed Jews have tried to remove the divide uh, between men and women at the Western Wall. Remember that? Men pray on one side while women pray on the other. And that's really uh, so that they don't distract one another, right? But the reason that divide is still up is because of the Orthodox Jews. Uh, They actually have argued uh, from the perspective of the Torah, which is their law, right? That's the law of the Jewish, uh, or or that is that is the Jewish law. And right, they've said that they there must be a divide between men and women as per the Torah, even though Reformed Jews have actually tried to to take down that divide, which is really interesting. Orthodox Jews can actually interpret any situation through the lens of the Torah. That's something that you you really find out rather quickly here. You may find it odd that Jews will not drink milk and then eat meat together, and that they will even go so far as to wait six hours before consuming a milk product after eating a meat product. And of course, that situation has the flip and it stays the same, right? But that was a decision in rabbinic law, in rabbinic tradition that they came to based on the understanding of the Torah and then the commentary that that developed from that. And that's really where we see these wide-ranging laws and then these scopes that are so, uh, so broad. So actually, since we're on this little tangent about sects of Judaism, let me tell you about two sects that I think you'll find interesting on what we know already. Sects of Judaism really are are just Jews, but they have some differing beliefs uh, within the actual denomination. So so one one sect that I find pretty interesting is the Karaite Jews, and they're actually Jews um, that are allowed to consume milk and meat products together, which, which is rather different. The products just have to be from different species, right? Now, they also don't celebrate the major Jewish holiday of Hanukkah because the Bible never mentions it. So that's interesting. And lastly, do you remember when we had our Shabbat meal? It was a while ago, I know. But one thing we learned that's key about the Shabbat is that you must not do any work on the Shabbat. 
But in going through the ceremony, you'll remember that we had to light candles and say a prayer. And so Karaite Jews would say that this is actually breaking the Shabbat because you are not to light a flame on the Shabbat. So, so in doing that and actually practicing that Shabbat tradition, you're breaking the Shabbat. So that's one sect. Another is, is the Satmar Jews, and they're a sect of Hasidic Judaism, and that's a division of Orthodox Judaism. So we, we've been pretty familiar thus far with Orthodox Judaism and what we've seen, and I, I feel like I've kind of uh, taken you along that bend, right? But Satmars, well, they're a sect, and they're very strict in their adherence to the law. They don't accept anything from modern culture. They're actually anti-Zionist, which is a little odd, considering that they're Jews and anti-Zionist at the same time, but that's how this sect operates. They also use a little bit of a different language. They speak mainly in Yiddish, so not Hebrew, and they have actually created an education system uh, for Satmar Jews where Yiddish is the main language that they speak in this education system in, in the schools. So that's just a, a quick little over, overview and you can get the idea that each sect is, is unique and has some specifics that wouldn't be accepted in maybe the Jewish practice that we've seen so far, which like I said has taken more of an orthodox bend. At the same time, members of these sects are still very much Jewish. So back to Qumran here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. So at Qumran, we don't know what sect of Judaism existed there. A popular opinion is that the Essenes lived there, and, and a quick briefing on the Essenes, they were very much careful to obey the Torah, as we know, and, and all the laws therein. And uh, they said that there was immortality, but they believed there was no resurrection of the body. So that's something something known about them. And they kept away from public life. So to an extent, I think it actually makes sense why they would be out here in the desert in Qumran, away from bustling Jerusalem or other major hubs for Judaism, where you had to be part of public life. Instead, they wanted a removal from that. So we also had the chance to go inside the Shrine of the Book over at the Israel Museum and see the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we learned a bit about the discovery of the scrolls and how a sheep probably ended up in a cave and then needed to be rescued by a shepherd who found the scrolls and then sold them to an antiquities dealer. And the antiquities dealer then showed them to a professor who begged David Ben-Gurion, Prime Minister of Israel, for the money to buy them. And, and then some of the other scrolls were sold to a family in New York. And that family was the one responsible for the creation of the Shrine of the Book, a, a place to house the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it was so cool to be able to see some of the scrolls knowing how old they are. They are literally the oldest available manuscripts we have around of some books from the Bible and also some specific laws relating to sects of Judaism. We also saw the Aleppo Codex, which is the oldest manuscript of the Hebrew Bible. And so for the Jews in Aleppo, Syria, this codex was so important to them. If you'll remember, they believed it had magical powers. But then the codex went missing when there were riots in Aleppo in the 1940s. And we learned that it reappeared a number of years later in 1958, but a bunch of the pages were missing. So did people take it? Were pages actually destroyed by a fire? Although I will say the burn marks that people point to as evidence for on the codex um, well, those aren't burn marks. They've been analyzed, and they really are just mold. So these questions have never been answered. You know, getting to see uh, the Aleppo Codex last time when we were right there, it piqued my interest uh, concerning the Codex. And in the past, I guess I've been more interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in fact, the first time I came to the Israel Museum, I kind of skipped past the Aleppo Codex part. Kind of didn't go down there and look around much. But now I'm trying to learn more about it and do some research because really I want to know more concerning what happened to the Codex between the time periods of the riots in the late 1940s and when it reappeared with portions gone in 1958. 
So of course, my virtual voyagers, I'll let you know what I find. Well, virtual voyagers, I am sorry to have to wake you so early this morning. Right now it's 3.45 a.m. and our bus driver, Mikael, will be here in the next 30 minutes or so to pick us up and drive us north to a place called Masada. Maybe you've heard of it. Well, today on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, we're hiking it. So listen to my next instructions very carefully right here as we're in the lobby of our hostel. And then I want you to return to your hostel room and get these items and then we'll all meet together and get on the bus. So you're gonna need a few things. So, so keep, keep this mind or keep this list uh, in the front of your mind. So you're gonna need good hiking shoes. We're gonna be doing a lot of walking today, both to get up to the top of the mountain, uh, to walk around on top of the mountain and then to go back down. And I just beg of you, please don't wear Crocs like my siblings, please. I get way too nervous watching people to go down snake path in Crocs. Just don't do it, please, thank you. <laughs> You're gonna need lots of water. And this is a statement I'm gonna make, not to scare you, but it's important. People have died before doing this hike up and down Masada, only because they didn't drink and they got dehydrated. A lot of times these, these college kids maybe will go over and, and they'll go on a trip and you know they'll do the hike and they think they're all strong, right? I'm a college student, I get it. We, we maybe are, are in good shape and we can do this hike, but we don't drink water and we're going to the desert. And we're on top of Masada. Well, on top of Masada, there really is no shade. And so there are hardly any portions where you get to escape the desert heat and the desert sun. And people, like I said, have been unwise before. And they haven't been drinking water like they should have. And when you're out in the Middle Eastern desert for four or five hours or more, that's an issue. So just bring some water bottles. We'll have a chance to refill our water bottles at the top of Masada as well. And you'll also probably want to bring a backpack to keep your water in. Probably don't want to carry that. Except you could be like my brother. You'll love this. He didn't want to carry a backpack uh, when we were over in Israel. But he obviously needed water because you always need water with you in Israel. It doesn't matter if you're in Jerusalem and, and there's a city or if you're up on top of Masada. So he took this refillable water bottle and then he took some paracord that he had brought in his suitcase. And he made a sling for the water bottle. So he literally takes the paracord and puts it through the loop of the water bottle and then carries it around. But at some point, the paracord was uncomfortable to walk with. So he took these paper towels and he wrapped them around the rope. And then he used duct tape to reinforce the paper towels so we wouldn't have to replace the paper towels every day. I mean, it was literally genius. And some of my other siblings started doing this. He had this huge water bottle that he could refill whenever there was a water station. And he carried it around his body, like kind of like a water purse, I guess. I mean, love it. It was great. <laughs> and then you also want to bring a hat. Like I said, people have died in Masada. I mean, and not frequently, but it happens, right? So I don't want to scare you. But people have died in Masada from not drinking and getting dehydrated. And also from having the sun actually baking them. We're going to be nice and high in the sky, and you don't want to have the sun beating down on you for hours without a nice wide-brimmed hat. You're also going to want some sunscreen or a sun jacket. I like a sun jacket because then I don't have to stop and reapply sunscreen, and also the sunscreen gets sticky. I don't like the feel of it, so I just wear a sun jacket. But you do what you want, just so no one gets baked by the sun. That's all we're here for, right? Also, I'd suggest don't wear shorts. I'm going to wear capris that cover my knees. And the reason I'm going to do that is out of respect for the place where we're going. I'll tell you all about it later, but this is where uh, a bunch of Jews, uh, around a thousand, committed mass suicide in order to not fall into Roman captivity. And as is the case for many Jews, it's a very revered place. So while it's not a holy site, I kind of classify it as like a, uh, a pseudo-holy site, I guess you could say. 
So I would say don't wear shorts for two reasons. One, you don't want your skin baked alive. And two, it's just respectful to Jewish tradition. Also, bring sunglasses, okay? If you have them, bring them. Maybe you've noticed by now that in Israel, sunglasses are a must. I have transition lenses on my glasses, on my glasses and, and for the first week or so on my first trip to Israel, I just tried to make it with those. They're fine in America. But when you're in the desert, that's a different story. And I just broke down. My eyes could not take it. So I, I got sunglasses that actually went over my glasses. Maybe not the most stylish thing, but you know what? It worked. I got them over at the Mamilla Mall, actually. Remember when we walked through there? Um, and that was the former partition, actually, between uh, the Jerusalem of the Jordanians and then the Israelis. That's pretty cool. You know what that is. Also, you'll want to bring a phone camera uh, or, or just a camera, if you have that, too, to take some pictures. We're leaving so early. I know it's, it's like 4 in the morning right now, but we're leaving so early because I want us to experience Masada at sunrise. It's absolutely breathtaking. Seeing a sunrise over the Dead Sea, I don't think I've ever seen a better sunrise. And that's, that's truly my honest take. So take a few minutes to gather your things and then meet me here in about 15 minutes to hop on the bus. Okay, so let's hop on the bus and make the around two hour drive north to the Dead Sea region. And that's where Masada lies. And yes, I said we're going to the Dead Sea region. That's right, I don't think you all have seen the Dead Sea yet here in Israel, right? We've, we've kind of been around Jerusalem, we went to Hebron, but uh, yeah, we and, and Shiloh, but we haven't really seen the Dead Sea. Well, you probably know something about the Dead Sea. It's extremely salty. If you've, I mean, a lot of people have been swimming in the Atlantic or Pacific Oceans, right? And we know that's salty. I've forgotten that just a wave to hit you and you swallow some salt water and you're coughing. Well, you think that's salty. The Dead Sea is 10 times saltier than our oceans. And maybe you already know this, but it's so salty that nothing except for some salt-loving organisms, maybe like halophiles, can live there. And of course, because it's so salty, you can float just because of the density. So it's, it's really cool. We'll experience that at, at some point when we're here in the north where you'll actually get to walk into the Dead Sea and you'll float for a few minutes and then you can't stay in there too long because the salt will literally dry out your skin. So you got to come back out and take a break from the salt and then you can try it again if you'd like. So as we hop in the, the bus here and we drive in the early morning darkness to Masada here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, go ahead and sit back and just listen about the place that we're headed to today. So Masada was a winter palace for King Herod. And that, yep, that's the same guy who made the Western Wall and built the huge structure in Hebron at the Tomb of the Patriarchs and did some other stuff that we'll learn about later. It would get cold. So he'd head up to the desert in the winter where it wasn't so cold, and he built this elaborate structure on a mountain in the 30s BC. I mean, he, he had living areas built. He had this three-tiered palace. The tiers actually go down the mountainside. It's really cool, and we can actually walk down them, which is, which is just fascinating. He had cisterns up there to keep water. He had kitchens, bathhouses, barracks for soldiers. There's elaborate mosaic floors on the inside of some of the buildings. And also, he would have these floors that could actually be heated. Like, like there'd be a little, uh, a little distance between the floor and then the actual ground level itself. And then you could get hot air in there and, and then it'd be nice and hot. So lots of things, lots of technological innovations that he created right up there in Masada. And it's remarkable what he was able to accomplish. So in the process of building this, this Masada structure, there was a route to get to the top of the fortress. 
And this is Snake Path. So Snake Path is crazy. Israel's tourism industry doesn't have the same rules that we might have in America. So when you're going down Snake Path, there are no handrails. And you can actually look off the side of the path and just see a huge drop off the mountain. It's pretty scary. I'll let you in on a secret about, about myself. I cried the first time I had to go down Snake Path. I was 15 years old. Yes, I promised I would take the cable car next time I did this. They actually do have a cable car, which is really cool. So if you don't want to make the hike up to Masada, you can pay for the cable car to go up and down quickly. But the experience of hiking it is so great. I've been in the cable car. It's nice. But I think we'll have a lot of fun hiking it. So I was later told by my family that when I was walking down Snake Path, I was hysterical. I was completely out of it. I think I heard that I even told my siblings to stop kicking stones because I was saying that an avalanche might come. Yeah, I know it makes a lot of sense, right? I'm actually, I do remember this part. I was hugging the side of the mountain as I'm walking down Masada. And I'm just, I'm just not even walking in the path. I'm just staying as close to the mountain as I possibly can. I do have some good news for you, though. We won't go down Snake Path until later. We actually are going to go down it. Some crazy people go up it, too. And, I, and sometimes I'm walking down Snake Path and you pass them coming up it. And you just can't imagine because it's straight up. And it is way too hard for us. So we're, we're just going to walk up the siege ramp. We'll get to that later. And go down Snake Path. So like I said, Snake Path was constructed as a way for Herod's people to get up. And there's another part of the story to Masada. So remember that the Jews struggled to maintain control over Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. There were periods in which they were victorious, and then there were times in which they were not. And when the Romans came and conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC, many Jews fled. And actually a remnant fled to King Herod's old palace, Masada. Uh, if you are asking why, well, you just have to think about it. There was some food left there from when Herod had, had built it. There were cisterns, and they were overflowing with water. It had living areas. It was a strategic location on top of this mountain, so it made a lot of sense. So this remnant of less than a thousand Jews was hiding out in Masada so that the Romans couldn't get to them. And remember Snake Path? They actually blocked Snake Path. So the only option the Romans had to get up and obliterate the Jewish remnant was to create their own way up. So they built a siege ramp, and we're actually going to climb that siege ramp to the top. That'll be our morning hike up to see the sunrise. And some people say this took a few months. Others say it took two years. We don't really know because the only account we have of Masada is from Josephus, right, the historian. But however long it was, we know from his account that the Jews would hamper the Romans' plans by throwing boulders and whatever they could find down in the Romans as they're trying to build the siege ramp. The Romans knew they just had to wait, though. I mean, how long could this group of about a thousand people stay on the mountaintop right there? Like, they're going to run out of food or water at some point. So you can actually start to see Masada in the distance. We're coming up on it. If you look out of the window to the right here, it's not that big, right? See, it has the top and there's the mountain and the, and the top part, like I said, um, with all the living areas and the food and the cisterns. But the Jews did what they could to hold out. And eventually, the siege ramp was built. And the Romans expected to find all of the Jews that they had been waiting there to slaughter. They get up to the top, they break open the walls, but instead they found... Well, we're just now arriving at Masada, and what a cliffhanger this is. <laughs> a little bit of a pun, get it? Cliffhanger? But we're out of time, so we'll just have to pick up right here in the parking lot of Masada next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage. 
The Armchair Travel Show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our tour of Masada, the fortress for the brave Jewish remnant who held out against the Romans for a period of time until... You'll just have to come back and find out how the story ended on next week's episode of The Virtual Voyage.